G'day Ice Coffee listeners. I mentioned in the last episode an exception to the rule by which the First World War got in the way of Antarctic exploration. And that exception was the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. Or- um, Organised by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Uh, I just he was calling me on the garment. No longer able to set his sights on the South Pole as a goal by which to fire public enthusiasm, Shackleton began contemplating a crossing of the entire Antarctic continent almost as soon as news of Amundsen's success in the South reached Britain. The idea of a transantarctic crossing was previously taken south by Wilhelm Filchner, but I think the origins of the concept lie with William Spears Bruce, with whom Filchner and Shackleton both discussed their plans. Whomever first put forth the idea, Shackleton seized upon it as the last great endeavour in the South, and set about bringing the idea to fruition. The plan was a simple one on paper, but required a lot of money and energy to get it moving. Send two ships south, one sailing each into the Ross and Waddell Seas, while sledging parties headed overland from the furthest south their ship could reach in the Waddell Sea, sledging parties from the Ross Seaside would begin laying depots that would sustain their compatriots as they emerged from the Polar Plateau. Like I said, simple plan, but set it against the scale of Antarctica and the prevailing conditions, even in that part of the year conducive to sledging, and it doesn't really matter how simple your plan is, it's damn hard yards. With a knighthood in hand and the explorer cred of the British Antarctic Expedition, Nimrod Edition, giving his new, ambitious project some degree of sizzle, Shackleton began new rounds of fundraising schmoozing. He wasn't helped at this point by his brother Frank. Previously having been implicated in a plot to steal the Irish crown jewels, Frank was at this point implicated in the defrauding of a widow, and there were no two ways about it. Shackleton had to disown his brother if he was going to hold any credibility in fundraising. Frank changed his name, moved away, and lived out his life with no further interaction with his brother. I don't get too excited about the geographic firsts or furthests or fastests, and the idea of crossing a continent, while a valid goal if there's an urgent need to open up a continent, or to establish communication routes, or to find arable land or potable water sources. It leaves me cold in an Antarctic context. Charisma counts for a lot in these matters, though, and Shackleton had that in spades. He managed to drum up support from the Earl of IV, the Guinness Baron, the only major backer to carry over from Shackleton's previous expedition, and received £10,000 from Birmingham businessman Dudley Docker, who wanted a cut of any film royalties, £24,000 from Scottish jute magnate James Caird, with no return expected, and an anonymous donation from Janet Stancombe Wills, who's now famous mostly for this anonymous donation. The association between the expedition and her name coming about due to dramatic events in the Waddell Sea in the latter chapters of the ITAE. The Daily Chronicle bought the story in image rights arising from the expedition, and £20,000 was put up if Frank Hurley would go south and film the expedition. With £10,000 of government money released by Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George, the expedition was well found to get organising. Sir Clemens Markham, don't worry, you'll be rid of the curmudgeonly old git in a few more episodes, denounced the expedition as being entirely geared towards self-aggrandisement. And he may well have been correct, 
But being Sir Clemens Markham, he wasn't in much of a position to cite that as a criticism of anyone else. Being the odds-on favourite in the all-time iced coffee, who's a big self-aggrandising sociopath stakes, knocking Karsten Borschgravink into the hedges and giving Admiral Byrd a serious run for his money. Sir Clements muttered asides aside, the Royal Geographic Society threw their intellectual support behind the project, and before it was all over and the story of Shackleton's finest hour came to light, Sir Clements would die in the tragic reading accident recounted, albeit briefly, in my laboratory presentation back in April, setting fire to his bedclothes while reading by candlelight in his hammock, and dying some days later from the resulting smoke inhalation. And it couldn't have happened to a more deserving bloke. Shackleton's plans also played well with the British public, their national pride still smarting over their dead heroes, done wrong by the sneaky Norwegian, Boo Hiss. Shackleton played up a public sentiment that this last great geographic journey should be made under a British flag. Though when questioned about exactly what geographic findings the expedition would expedite, he fell back on discussing auxiliary sledging parties, meteorological observations, and determining whether or not the mountains of Victoria land extended across the entire continent. But I don't think the science was ever the primary driver with Shackleton, or anyone else involved in English Antarctic projects up to this point and doubt the public he pitched these notions of scientific integrity to ever thought to question the matter closely. They had honour, science and Union Jacks, and by jingo they would wave all three vigorously. Shackleton stated, quote, This last great journey should be made under the British flag, since the whole of the area southward to the Pole is British territory, unquote, and referred to Antarctic exploration as the white warfare of the South. I've long been a bit leery of this phrase, figuring it was Shackleton playing to the jingoism excited in the prelude to the First World War, and thought it could only seem a good idea to someone who didn't realise exactly how protracted and brutal the looming war would turn out. Shackleton continued to use the phrase after the conflict, the dedication in his book, South, reading, To my comrades who fell in the white welfare of the South and on the red fields of France and Flanders. Where Wilhelmer Stephenson's false equivalence between polar exploration and the war leaves me with a little sick in my mouth, Shackleton gets a let on this one because he did serve during the First World War. But it still seems like a marketing line that might best have been dropped in the face of five years of actual bloodshed. Winston Churchill, the first sea lord, felt that with so many lives already lost in polar climes and the pole already attained, no further gain lay in hand within, quote, this sterile quest, unquote. But upon request, he agreed to release from service Royal Navy personnel with Antarctic experience under Scott to join the expedition. At this point, I'm going to go in reverse order to that chosen by most people recounting the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition by addressing the Ross Sea Party first. This is, in part, because the Ross Sea events occurred concurrently with those playing out in the Weddell Sea, making any precedents arbitrary on temporal grounds, and because I like to think well of Ernest Shackleton and the story of the Ross Sea Party is hard to reconcile with that. I want to hold on to the aspects of the ITAE in which he shines for later, to cheer me up after I get this sorry tale, which Ice Coffee regular supporting actor and secretary to the Royal Geographic Society, Hugh Robert Mill, noted in 1928 as necessarily remaining unpublished for some time so as not to sully anyone's reputation, out of my system. This is the story I find most harrowing among all of the history of human activity below the circle, even beating out that of the inexpressible island troglodytes, and some of Shackleton's decisions helped make it what it is. 
In running up preparations for the Ross Sea depot voyage, Shackleton arranged to purchase the steam yacht Aurora, previously used by the Australasian Antarctic Expedition. Already positioned in the South Pacific, and also already two decades old and well used for most of that span, the Aurora soaked up 3,200 pounds of expedition funds, less than a third of what was spent on the Polaris, a newly commissioned Norwegian barkatine built to take tourists into the Arctic, and therefore unusually fit for purpose and about a century ahead of its time in terms of a workable business model, hence it coming up for sale. The Polaris, quickly renamed the Endurance, a name stemming from Shackleton family motto, by endurance we conquer, only in Latin, because knobby families are keen on that sort of faux antique social cachet, cost £11,600, and the disparity in the allocation of resources between the Weddell Sea and the Ross Sea party preparations didn't end there. The Aurora, already an elderly vessel when it carried the AAE South two years earlier, required slipping and repairs. Shackleton hadn't forwarded enough funding to Macintosh to cover such expenses, but the Australian state and federal governments put up some funds for this on Edgeworth David's advice. The Prime Minister Andrew Fisher cut the national contribution to only £500 for work carried out at the naval dockyards at Cockatoo Island in Sydney Harbour, the rest of the money coming from a hurriedly organised public subscription scheme. John King Davis having knocked back the invitation to sail the Aurora South once more, Shackleton placed Aeneas McIntosh in charge of both the ship and the Ross Sea Party overall. Recall that McIntosh, acting as second officer aboard the Nimrod, was left one-eyed after an accident with a lading hook during disembarkation at Cape Royds in 1907. Some authors think it was sympathy for this injury that led Shackleton to grant his fellow merchant service officer the role, and I don't see any problem with that. McIntosh was a first-rate mariner and a good selection for master, and his past experience in McMurdo Sound augured well for the safety of the Aurora and its crew. McIntosh arranged to purchase the Spark Gap wireless equipment previously used, to limited success, aboard the Aurora. Government coffers opened a little wider when an arrangement to resupply the Macquarie Island Meteorological Station offered advantages to all involved. Shackleton sought out veteran of the Discovery and Nimrod expeditions and shoreside fixer for the Australasian Antarctic expedition, Ernest Joyce, then working for the Sydney Harbour Board. Of the expedition members heading to the Ross Sea, Joyce had the most sledging experience, particularly when it came to running dog teams effectively. Besides taking part in many sledging forays during his two voyages to the ice, he led the depot party to Minna Bluff, constituting McIntosh's only sledging experience during the second summer of Shackleton's British Antarctic expedition. Telegram correspondence with Shackleton led Joyce to understand that he would lead the sledging efforts and that McIntosh, while in charge of the party overall, was responsible more for the sea voyage and arrangements at winter quarters. Ernest Wilde, younger brother of the redoubtable Frank, who would accompany Shackleton to the Weddell Sea aboard the Endurance, was also signed on for dog handling duties during the depot-laying mission. Shackleton's orders required that depots be laid every degree to the Beardmore Glacier, reaching at least 80 degrees south on the barrier in the first summer, in case fair weather in the Waddell Quadrant indicated an early departure from that side, 
adding considerable time pressure to a project already getting off on a footing of uncertain leadership responsibilities. Astute listeners will hear the storm are coming. The Ross Sea Team comprised biologist Vic Hayward, experienced in operating in the Canadian far north. Dr John Cope, a name with some future Antarctic interest, joined as expedition medico and biologist. Lionel Hook, eventually the head of AWA, came aboard to operate the Spark Gap Wireless. Irvine Gaze, an Australian cousin to Spencer Smith, see more anon. And also from Australia, Keith Jack would sail as meteorologist. Anglican clergyman and Cambridge graduate, Reverend Arnold Patrick Spencer Smith applied to join, but Shackleton's general mistrust of holy men indicated against his inclusion. I don't much go in for salacious rumours because what a person gets up to in their own time is their business, but in the case of the clergy, whose habit of bossing the community around with their arbitrarily written and even more capriciously enforced morality really get my goat, and all bets are off. So I'll pass along that the scuttlebutt has Shackleton taking a more kindly cast on Spencer Smith when on opening his attaché case, a woman's silk stocking and a champagne cork fell out. Whether he was wearing the stockings himself or taking them off a close friend, clergymen can take their preached morality and stick it where the hypocrisy don't shine. Either way, Spencer Smith joined as the expedition photographer, with a little preaching on the side, because the bastards can't help themselves, it seems. Shackleton felt that the familiar ground of the Ross Sea and its well-built huts would provide no unexpected difficulties for an ex- and well-equipped team, and pretty much left Macintosh to fend for himself, though you wouldn't know that to read any of the press relating to the ITAE at the time. Australian physicist Dick Richards travelled from Ballarat, Victoria, to Sydney to interview for a scientific position in the expedition. His first impression of the famous, in Australia, steam yacht Aurora, leaving him less than impressed, having overlooked the battered and blackened hulk while looking for a vessel with a more heroic appearance. Macintosh accepted Richards, the youngest member of the crew, with little formality and a thoroughly good decision that would turn out to be in light of later events. The Britain-based contingent of the Ross Sea Party departed London aboard the liner Ionic in September 1914, Expedition members rendezvoused with the Aurora in Hobart in a similar arrangement to that recalled in the Aurora's preparations for departure southward in 1911. The expedition dogs went to the quarantine station at Taruna in the care of Ernest Wilde, while the stores and equipment accumulated in the sheds at Queen's Wharf. The equipment forwarded from Britain turned out, on unpacking, to be insufficient for the depot-laying expedition and noted that whomever left them short-sheeted like this would answer to him when the dust settled, but recognised that bitter recriminations wouldn't stand in where hut materials, clothing, food and sledges were needed, and set about raising the victuals and equipment by means of loans and donations. One thing that did arrive from Britain was the motor tractor, another in a long line of ambitious petrol-driven mechanisms designed to help tow sledges across ice and snow. This particular attempt to solve the sledging equation by mechanical engineering comprised a central metal barrel wheel, or tombola, with gouging treads to bite into the ice. This assembly rotating behind steerable runners. Kept now in a museum in New Zealand, it looks like a steampunk skidoo. Guess how it performed. Go on, guess. No? Well, I guess you're right. We should try and stay chronological. It was shitbox. 
sorry, sorry, spoilers. The Aurora hosted a visit by the Governor of Tasmania, Sir William McCartney, and his wife. Lady McCartney being one of the sisters Robert Falcon Scott put so much time and thought into keeping in her accustomed comfort after their father's death. She gave the crew of a ship a framed portrait of her dead martyr brother to carry south, the mean of the grief worship that sprang up in the wake of the Terra Nova expedition and in the prelude to the First World War. The Aurora sailed down the Dotracasto Channel on Christmas Eve 1914 and arrived at Macquarie Island on New Year's Eve. The Macquarie Island visit lasted a week, livestock and stores going ashore, and Joyce killing some of the local seal population to sustain the huskies until they could partake of the Ross Sea Waddells. The Aurora sailed south, leaking and burning through five tonnes of coal a day after its cheap and cheerful repairs at the Cockatoo Yards. The ship encountered the first icebergs on the 3rd of January 1915, reaching the pack ice the following day at 64 degrees 28 minutes south. The materials for the prefabricated hut were passed up from the hold, ready for immediate use at Ross Island. On making landfall, the first goal was to lay a depot and build a small prefab hut at Cape Crozier for a mooted egg collecting party and penguin breeding habit study by Dr Cope. But all attempts to find a workable landing site among the pack ice came to nothing. Operating close into the ice barrier while trying to achieve this goal, the jibboon was torn off from the glacier face and McIntosh abandoned the Cape Crozier project and ordered running repairs made to the rigging. McIntosh instead worked the ship around the western side of Ross Island. The sea ice in McMurdo Sound lay fast 10 miles north of the huts at Cape Evans. With the ship made fast against the ice edge, Joyce lowered the dogs and began the slow process of working them up to sledging fitness and taught the uninitiated members of the wintering party the basics of skiing. Joyce expected autonomy in dog operations, his long suit in the situation, and something Shackleton granted him in the orders he received. He felt surprised that McIntosh planned on going ashore to oversee the sledging and quickly found himself at odds over the technically senior man's decisions on that front. Two men with strong personalities and conflicting written instructions from their leader. Join the dots there. Joyce deferred to the authority of McIntosh's officer commission, but unpacking the sledging materials did nothing to assuage the bitterness over the difficulties imposed on him by the lack of clarity and care obvious in preparations made for and communications with the Ross Sea Party. Less than half the necessary sledging clothing was sent out from England in the packages Joyce received and loaded aboard at Hobart. Of this short sheeting he wrote, One day I will interview the person responsible for this disgraceful omission. There's a fair chance it was someone working under Shackleton who failed to deliver the necessary goods, but, as with the safe running of a ship, it's the captain who holds ultimate responsibility for the equipping of their expedition, and the uncertain leadership arrangements stand as the main reason I find the Ross Sea Party such a disappointing blot in Ernest Shackleton's copybook. Just got some Gentoo penguins wandering past. Fucking surreal. Strong winds began breaking out the sea ice the day after the Aurora arrived, and McIntosh began working the ship into the leads, using the steel sheathed bow as an early icebreaker, pushing the ship onto the ice and letting the bow ride up and letting the weight break the ice apart. This was working all right, 
but the resulting fragments tended to draw in around the ship's propeller. Ice has a high Mohs number, making it harder than many types of rock, and more than capable of bending a propeller up pretty badly, as I recently learnt to my distress. So Dick Richards was lowered over the stern with a boat hook to push the ice clear. On reaching Cape Evans, McIntosh and Joyce went ashore and broke into the hut, not touched since the Terranova departed. Seeing the luxurious appointments and the absence of snow inside indicating a fairly good weatherproofing, McIntosh decided to use Cape Evans as their winter quarters. The north-facing beach of Cape Evans, while protecting the adjacent waters from the prevailing southerly winds, couldn't offer the same level of protection as the anchorage on Hut Point, but Shackleton insisted they not use that site because of the chance of the aurora being iced in for multiple years. Good hut, windward shore and consistent open water in the summer. Cape Evans, all things considered, was the right choice ahead of Hut Point, but Joyce expressed his reservations regarding the fickle nature of the sea ice they would need to rely on to reach the barrier from Cape Evans. The extra slogging and the chance people might get stuck at Hut Point, waiting for ice thick enough to warrant risking a crossing, would have to be taken on the chin. Cape Evans was the go. Ten tonnes of coal and 98 cases of oil were put ashore at Cape Evans on the 16th of January, 1915, and the ship carried on down McMurdo Sound to put the depot-laying party ashore as close to the barrier as possible. The Aurora pushed south into the rapidly rotting sea ice and Joyce set down sledges and a party of six to attempt a reconnaissance of the Hut Point hut. The crossing turned out to be a hard one, with several members breaking through the ice crust to receive a thorough soaking. Arriving wet and badly chilled, Joyce's party forced their way into the hut, half filled with compacted drift snow and still stinking of the blubber stove last used four years earlier. Joyce lit the stove and made the first of many hooshes the new Antarcticans would taste. Mentoring his charges in the law of sledging, the senior man remarked, Whatever you think of this food now, the days will come when you'll ache for it, I can tell you. You'll get this for breakfast, and if you're lucky, all day long while you work like monkeys pulling the sledges, you'll be longing to feel it warming your bellies in the evening when you camp. That's if you've got enough left to eat. Probing about in the drift snow, he found some cigars, some green liqueur, someone figured must be creme de menthe, and a case of dog biscuits left over from 1902, Joyce recalling clearly having unloaded it from the discovery. With a mug of tea in one hand and a dog biscuit in the other, the men hunkered in for their first night ashore as the wind rose to a gale and worked to remove what remained of the sea ice from the sound. McIntosh, interpreting his orders in a manner contradictory to those given Joyce, made ready to leave the aurora in first mate Stenhouse's hands and to supervise the sledging operations ashore. Stenhouse, competent maritime officer that he was, held no experience of polar climbs and received much opprobrium for his choices subsequent to McIntosh's handover. Those criticisms should, I think, take into account McIntosh's role in staging the situation in which Stenhouse's lacking pertinent experience mattered to the extent that it did. In spite of Joyce's protestations that the dogs should be given more time to work up to sledging fitness, as they still showed the hit on their condition caused by months at sea, out of harness practice and nearly continually soaked by cold seawater, McIntosh immediately tasked sledging parties, two using dogs and one using the motorised sledging machine, with carrying supplies onto what fast sea ice remained, nine miles north of Hut Point, to lay depots at 79 degrees, the Bluff Depot, and 80 degrees south. 
Joyce and the two strong Australians, Keith Jack and Irvine Gaze, would break trail out in front. The second slot, McIntosh's sledge, pulled in company with Ernest Wilde and Spencer Smith. The two dog teams and a team using the motorised sledging machine would follow these two sledges. On their first night out with this arrangement, the dogs bit through their tethers and began fighting for pack dominance, one dog dying in the process, its throat ripped out in the deadly serious business. On reaching the barrier, the new, soft snow made the sledge runners stick in place, forcing Joyce's crew to work out a relay system to gain any ground. Oh. Episode 53, part two, being recorded at Port Charcot. On Plano Island. If he's not already, can you tell Christian to add some In Plano Bay, up at the Magnetician's Hut, or what's left of it, a little dry stone wall. Overlooking the ice filled bay that the Francais was moored up with its hawsers to protect it against icebergs. It's snowing quite heavily. Waddell seal out on the sea ice. Gen 2 penguins around the corner nesting. Doing a fair impression of a magnetic hut, actually, with their dry stone. Well, it's not really dry stone with all the poop. Nest. And I'm pretty damn stoked to be here. But, on to the script. The motorised sledge pulmatron, driven by Dick Richards, didn't work well. The clutch burning out short of hut point. At safety camp, still marked by the bamboo poles from four years earlier, Macintosh uncovered a bag load of oats, formerly pony food, and two cartons of dog biscuits. Further digging about by Spencer Smith and Richards revealed one of Skelton's sledging tractors, less edible than dogs, less tractive than ponies, and still out there somewhere. Macintosh sent Dick Richards' dog team north, carrying on in tandem with Joyce's sledging party. On reaching Hut Point, Richards found the sea ice departed, The Aurora collected him and his charges, transferring the hole to Cape Evans. Joyce and McIntosh's teams pushed on southward, reaching Minna Bluff after two weeks of hard yards, depoting their first cache in a location made uncertain by wind-blown snow that precluded taking sights on the prominent landmarks, such as Mount Erebus and White Island, as per Shackleton's instructions. The men of the two parties built an extra-large can in case their return journey didn't coincide with sufficiently good weather as to allow a position check. The sense of achievement this depot garnered was tempered by the state of the dogs, one of them dying silently where it slept. Joyce gave his charges an extra big feed and voiced his misgivings over their health to Macintosh. They've had too hard a time. They've caved in and would be mad to take them any farther. Uh, Santiago, Santiago, Rocket, Rocket, Rocket. So I just uh, joined the path, but it needs like to finish a loop. Yeah, I'm going to keep putting more flags in the direction to the penguin colony, so, so I'm going to go to waste mat for the magnetic hat and the other ones keep going to the penguins.
We'll need them much more next season when we have to go through to the Beardmore. We can take supplies down to the 80th, but I fear the dogs won't survive much longer. Send them back. Macintosh split the difference, sending Gaze, Jack and Spencer Smith north with the weaker dogs, the light sledge and scope to recover at the huts, improving their chances of surviving long enough to build up some sledging fettle through the winter. Some concession to Joyce's concerns, but still likely to result in the deaths of the best sledging dogs. The party carrying south reached 80 degrees on the 20th of February and laid the depot, setting the transverse cans that would guide the crossing party to their food in the worst blizzard experienced Matt. in the month. Yvonne? Yvonne, this is Matthew, go ahead. Yeah, you can tell folks there's a good view of the F for Francais on the rock here. If they're interested, they can wander down. Thanks for that. Will do. <coughs> The party carrying south reached 80 degrees on the 20th of February and laid the depot, setting the transverse cans that would guide the crossing party to their food in the worst blizzard experienced in their month on the barrier. The blown snow buried the dogs deep, compacting under its own weight and necessitating the animals be dug out with human assistance. In poor condition after their hauling project, coming off a standing start, two of the nine died in their sleep. The men reduced their rations to one meal a day to avoid depleting the depots they worked so hard to lay. The weather didn't let up until the end of the month, and the dogs, further weakened by the cold and the shortened vittles, fell in their tracks as the party headed south. Only one dog, Pinky, remained alive, riding the sledge with Ernest Wilde, who was suffering frostbitten feet. Even this rest didn't help, and Pinky died from the sustained cold spell. Reaching 79 degrees south again, they spent five hours hauling the depot to the correct position and raising a large can to lead the transverse party to their food supply. A supply shortened by the week's worth of food Macintosh took to keep the dogless, weakening trio going. Now at the Melchior Islands, very still day. No snow, sky, eight octaves but clearing. Reaching 79 degrees south again, they spent five hours hauling the depot to the correct position and raising a large can to lead the traverse party to their food supply. A supply shortened by the week's worth of food Macintosh took to keep the dogless, weakening trio going. Mid-March, working towards safety camp, too weak to haul, Wild rode the sledge, his feet causing him tremendous pain with each step. They cut their rations down to half a cup of pemmican and a biscuit per man per day. They reached safety camp, but it was a near-run thing. The full ration saving at least Wild's life as his body fought off frostbites on his extremities, face and neck. They folded and packed the tent, but left it at the sledge at safety camp, determined to make hut point in one hit. The wind that dogged them north also robbed them of the sea ice between the barrier and Ross Island, forcing them to hobble the extra miles that skirted the barrier edge into windless bite where the glacial ice meets the shore of Ross Island. They limped across the ash-covered island, finding Dr John Cope at home at the hut, the blubber stove thawing them from their frozen clothing and reviving their bodies with hot food of a variety that sledging ops can't offer. 
coked lanced frostbite blisters, an amputated part of an earlobe and a toe from Ernest Wilde's badly frost-affected body. Jack and Hayward joined them in the hut, trapped in their efforts to retrieve a sledge to Cape Evans by the receding sea ice. The six men were safe, but conditions were far from optimal, with only three sleeping bags and the hut so cold that anything more than a half metre from the blubber stove froze solid. The Aurora landed no stores at Hut Point, and as the sun set for the final time that winter, they ran out of seal blubber. Scott's magnetic observation hut became firewood to keep the six men alive until Weddell seals showed up in mid-May. A late May blizzard took temperatures low enough to freeze the sound, but in testing its strength, Wilde and Joyce found the new surface too thin to support a crossing to Cape Evans. The 1st of June finally provided sea ice and weather conditions sufficient to allow the six sorry men to make their dash north. They started out in bright moonlight, but clouds left them floundering in the dark until Wilde could home in on the sound of dogs barking. The dogs grew more insistent in their cacophony as the six blubber-soot-suited men drew nearer and the Cape Evans residents came out to find out what spurred such a fuss, greeting their compatriots as they arrived at the safety and relative luxury of the Cape Evans hut. Jumping back in time, Richards, Gaze, Hook and Jack sent north from 79 degrees south, spent some days chewing blubber at Hut Point, unable to cross to Cape Evans due to the sea ice being gone. During a regular visit to Observation Hill, someone spotted the mast of the Aurora across the back of Cape Evans, and the party lit a blubber pyre to generate the black smoke that the ship's crew spotted in turn, Stenhouse then steaming south to collect them on the 11th of March. Unable to find a better mooring, Stenhouse decided to lay the ship up off the beach at Cape Evans. The longboats put ashore two kedge anchors, concreted into the foreshore with fresh water, and connected to the ship by seven steel hawsers and a thick steel cable. The heaviest anchors were set off the forward bowers, and the crew could move the ship forward and aft on the cables as needed. As with the Discovery, the Ross Sea Party planned to live mostly in the ship, using the hut as a staging platform for sledging operations. Stevens, Gaze, Richards and Spencer Smith moved into the hut temporarily, but besides the 10 tonnes of coal and the 100 cases of fuel, not much went ashore. The ship's engineer dismantled the steam engine to prevent mechanical damage, likely should any water freeze anywhere in the pipework. The Aurora was in for the winter, and the sea ice formed around the hull in a thick sheet. Some mid-April blizzards put the anchor system to the test, two of the steel hawsers snapping in the strongest winds, but the ship holding position. Until the 6th of May, anyway. A building blizzard through the afternoon turned into the worst blow to date. Dick Richards, up to take the 3am meteorological readings, rugged up in his ECWs and headed out onto the Cape Evans shore. Walking into the snow-clouded darkness, Richards took a few moments to notice the absence of masts where there should be masts. Heading down shore, he found the anchors, but the horses were twisted and snapped by the recent tension and release, as the ship and its nest of ice It was just an iceberg letting go some chunks. As the ship and its nest of ice strained offshore under the onslaught of the southerly wind and then broke free from the restraint. 
intent listening at the radio set gave up no Morse message from Lionel Hook on the Aurora. Uncertainty over the fate of the ship plagued those left on shore. With no radio contact, they couldn't know if the blizzard wrecked her on the glacier tongues to the north, or if the sea ice surrounding the hull would come under crushing pressure under whatever new state the ship wound up. Even if the ship came free of the sea ice and dodged the lee shores presented by glaciers and icebergs, Stenhouse couldn't work up to the wind without a lot of time spent reassembling the airfix kit steam engine only recently pulled down to preserve its delicate innards from the rigours of the southern winter. Irvine Gaze put into words their collective fears. We won't see her back this year, if ever. We have to face it. We're marooned. Taking stock, the four hut residents could only account the clothes they wore, a large stash of jam tins, flour and oatmeal and some pemmican. The tons of coal put ashore, having never been carried clear of the ice foot, disappeared with the sea ice that carried away the aurora. A sledging first aid kit comprised their medical supplies. Of the various sundries they would have to do without until rescue or death came for them, soap and tobacco posed the greatest deprivations. Laying in a seal stock to act as their larder and their fuel supply became the priority. Any Waddell's unfortunate enough to haul out near the headland, ending up cut into handy seal components with an axe. The hunt and the effort to fashion ad hoc scientific instruments occupied the four men until the night of the 2nd of June, when the Hut Point refugees arrived in the darkness amid much barking from the B-team dogs. Stevens cooked up the best of the available food for the smoky, smelly newcomers, allowing them the opportunity to bask in admiration for their feats out on the barrier, before giving them the bad news about the ship. Joyce fretted about the shortage of equipment and victuals for the coming sledging efforts, already made more daunting by the death of the best sledging dogs out on the barrier. Macintosh slumped at the news of the loss of the ship charged to his care, but, after consideration, didn't blame Stenhouse for the choices made in his stead. Taking everything into account, it was quite a fair judgement on his part to assume the ship would be secure here. The decision of Stenhouse to make this bay the wintering place of the ship was not reached without much thought and consideration of all eventualities, he wrote. Joyce's diary notes that Macintosh rallied magnificently, putting a positive face on all that happened from then on, chivying everyone toward their expedition goals and the smaller interpersonal benchmarks for successful communal life at Cape Evans. Captain material right there. Scavenging under the snow piles of equipment discarded by Scott's expedition, bringing to light such treasures as old sleeping bags, holy socks and underpants, pony rugs, and a huge tent deemed too big to prove useful in 1912, now offering a vital supply of canvas, broken sledging harnesses, and torn clothing. The cure-filled chocolates and foil-sealed cakes stood in contrast to the poor quality pemmican, flour, sugar, and cocoa, making up the bulk of the food added to their stores. Two well-used primus stoves, rescued from the dump, later proved the difference between success and failure by miserable, freezing, dehydrated death out on the barrier. Wild and Joyce set to with shears and sailmakers' needles and palms, fashioning sledging outfits and tents. Stiff canvas trousers stood in to prevent nudity while the Hut Point refugees dry-cleaned their blubber-soaked clothing in pans of the otherwise useless petrol previously slated for motorised sledging. All staff, all staff, all staff, just a couple more things. Uh, don't forget your distances from icebergs you already saw. Stiff canvas trousers stood in to prevent nudity 
while the Hut Point refugees dry-cleaned their blubber-soaked clothing in pans of the otherwise useless petrol, previously slated for motorised sledging, hanging the clothing out in good weather until no longer dangerously flammable. Forty pairs of Finesco, made from surplus reindeer skin sleeping bags, and 500 sledging food bags came from the ad hoc tailor shop, while Keith, Jack and Richards weighed out the rations that would form their own and Shackleton's sustenance out on the barrier. As is the mean for the nicotine deprived everywhere, the smokers tried various dried things as tobacco substitutes, all attempts proving unsatisfactory. Though Hut Point blend, Ernie Wilde's concoction comprising tea, coffee, sawdust and herbs, proved the least distasteful and even came to be a much-anticipated treat after a hard day of sledging preparations. An attempt was made to revive the sledge tractor, abandoned at Hut Point with a burnt-out clutch plate, a replacement clutch plate counting among the very few things unloaded from the ship. Richards and Gaze applied great ingenuity in dismantling the mechanism and mounting the new clutch, but even the revived machine proved too much trouble at being unable to pull anything approaching a useful load. It now resides in a museum in New Zealand, looking like the prototype Skidoo. In mid-August, Mackintosh and Stevens trekked along the shoreline, the sea ice still too thin to trust, to Cape Royds to see what might be acquired from Shackleton's left behinds. Besides enough tinned meat and dried vegetables and flour to last their small party a few months, they found a box of cigars and a tin of tobacco. Brown gold in the heroic age, before anyone knew about lung cancer or survived life at sea for long enough for it to be much of a problem. The cigars were smoked with tremendous satisfaction, the macerated stubs extending and improving Wilde's Hut Point blend substantially. In Mackintosh's absence, some genius went looking for a leak in the acetylene lighting system using a candle and set fire to the accommodations, because sometimes life just isn't challenging enough and you need to sacrifice all your belongings and shelter to the fire gods to really give yourself a situation to grit your teeth about. Dumbasses setting fire to my home or workplace or both is something of a pet hate for me. On the 22nd of August, the sun returned, shining on Cape Evans for the first time in long, dark months of biting frustration, pensive cogitation, and frantic fabrication. Joyce figured the remaining dogs likely more a hindrance than a help out on the barrier, and argued against their use, but Mackintosh insisted that they be set to hauling. Again, the mixed message about the Ross Sea leadership put the two men at loggerheads, but where Joyce was bang on the money about the previous season, the dogs would prove their worth in the second. The sledging kicked off in September with a series of positioning hauls to carry everything needed for the barrier down to Hut Point, Mackintosh establishing a halfway camp for anyone caught out by crook weather. The canvas trousers did sterling service in this month of back and forth, freezing and chafing as expected but saving the precious Burberry garments for service out on the barrier. It wasn't until mid-October that the weather allowed a window through which to begin sledging materials out beyond Pram Point, Joyce recording the efforts as the hardest sledging of his experience, the snow proving extremely sticky in the extreme cold. He weighed the loads at their base camp and found 175 pounds per sledger. No wonder the going was so tough. 
Macintosh and Joyce argued that evening and the next morning about how best to proceed. Macintosh, desperate to get as much food south as quickly as possible, and Joyce concerned that the fate dealt out to the dogs in the previous season's sledging awaited the men if worked to max schedule. Both men dedicated to their allotted task, but at odds over how to meet the challenge set them, Joyce implored, Mac, whatever happens, as long as I breathe, we shall lay the depot for the boss at Mount Hope, but you are asking the men for a physical impossibility. They're pulling too much weight too early in the season. Macintosh relented by the only path he saw as available to him, by ceding authority for two of the sledges to Joyce and carrying on with his own in company with Wilde and Spencer Smith. Sixty pounds lighter than before, but still aimed to put maximum food in Shackleton's path at the earliest possible moment. Desperate decisions in a desperate cleft stick. Macintosh, earnest, honest and loyal as he was, wasn't a natural leader outside the context of a ship's bridge, and the decision to split the group in this way stands as another example of the problem associated with split leadership in challenging conditions. Things may have worked out worse but for Macintosh's choice, but that that choice was necessary stands as evidence that Shackleton's unclear delegation of duties did the Ross Sea Party no favours. It could also be that had Joyce been given full control of the Ross Sea sledging operations, everyone would have died, too. But all we know is what did happen, and where the major flaws in that story lie. The split parties battled their way south, halting to make marker cans every half mile, sitting out the irregular but frequent blizzards repairing equipment and fighting frostbites. Still days passing in a dreamlike state of trudging forward in harness, conversation lying beyond the capacity of mortals tasked with hauling their load southward. Returning north from the bluff to collect their next relay load, Joyce's team came across an upturned sledge on the 26th of October. Left behind by Apsley Cherry Garrard as a depot marker for Scott's party, at that point seeing the last of Titus Oates as he disappeared into the blizzard further south. The old sledge yielded six crates of cod liver impregnated dog biscuits for Joyce's team, supplies that would prove critical in their efforts to work south of the bluff. Joyce nearly came undone in the trek back to Hut Point in using a risky tactic that previously served many parties well, the unencumbered final dash. Ditching the tent and cooking gear at Corner Camp, Joyce led his party toward the bay ice with a lightened sledge, but the weather closed in. In the resulting poor visibility, he nearly went over the sheer drop formed by the barrier edge. Stevens went down a crevasse to the end of his harness line and was only retrieved by careful rope wrangling. The six men made it to the bay ice and crossed to the hut without further incident, where they found Macintosh's team already in residence and cooking up seal steaks on the blubber stove, the poor quality of the fire and the fare failing to dent their enthusiasm to be warm and fed and out of the storm. Richards, with Joyce in support, argued that they should use the remaining dogs brought up to sledging fitness by Joyce's winter training program in the remaining bluff journeys. Macintosh, lacking the will to fight further trenching on his leadership, acquiesced in spite of reservations about dogs stemming from his previous season's disappointments, this point marking the final end of his effective leadership of the Ross Sea Party. Three men went north to Cape Evans to retrieve the remaining animals. Oscar, 
the motivated and energetic but underhanded leader, Gunner and Towser, the shiftless followers, and Con, the oddball. Where the other dogs came from Alaskan husky stock, Con, a donation from Sir Douglas Mawson, in turn descended from a donation from Roald Amundsen, and believed to be derived from polar stock, had a Samoyed heritage, and smelt different enough that the other male dogs hated his guts and tried constantly to fight him. Bitchy, friend to all but carrying a litter of puppies, was left at Cape Evans. Some accounts state two pregnant bitches were left with Stevens, keeping him company with his meteorological measurements, though none of the other bitches' pups survived. A seal-killing program, sufficient to supplement the Cherry Garrard cache of dog biscuits and to lay in supplies in case the Aurora should not show up by the anticipated sledge's return to the hut in March. A seal-killing program, sufficient to supplement the Cherry Garrard cache of dog biscuits and to lay in supplies in case the Aurora should not show up by the anticipated sledge's return to the hut in March, commenced. The parties headed back out onto the barrier on the 13th of December. These dogs, previously considered the least capable of the animals brought south, now appeared a magnificent powerhouse of sledge-pulling prowess, context and training having elevated their status in the eyes of tired men, and daily distances extended into the teens. By Christmas Day, Joyce's sledges were north of Minna Bluff, can hopping between the markers laid the previous season, and dead reckoning on the prismatic compass when visibility prevented clear sighting of a given can. McIntosh's team reached the Minna Bluff depot site on Christmas Day and enjoyed a big hoosh, featuring the heady luxury of onions. McIntosh brought out the remaining cigars cadged from the Cape Royds hut, and Christmas spirit reigned in the clouds of fragrant smoke. The three sledges reunited, but the progress to date gave McIntosh a gloomy outlook on their chances of reaching the Beardmore. He issued written orders that the whole party would push on to lay a depot at 81 degrees south and that Joyce, Richards and Hayward would continue on to 82 degrees south if possible, 100 nautical miles north of where Shackleton expected his supplies. Richards found it hard to reconcile his shortcoming with the responsibility laid on their shoulders, but later wrote in his diary, at the age of 22, that it would be so easy to sit down and just die much easier than this endless fight to survive. Keep Richard's words in mind if you ever find yourself condemning a suicide as an act of cowardice. In my, sadly extensive, experience, most people who commit suicide do so after fighting long and hard for their survival. Unfortunately, you can only lose that fight once, but people forget how many times a person might have already won it before quitting seems the preferred option. Nursing the dogs southward in short bursts, the two parties again separated, McIntosh falling behind the dog-assisted team. They made progress when the weather allowed, but as they passed the graves of the dogs driven to their deaths the previous season, the cans marked with the surplus harnesses of their occupants, Gaze took Joyce aside to show him his primus stove. The oldest, most dinged-up version of the cookers had burnt through in the top, Gaze's efforts with some tin directed the flame of the burner, but couldn't replicate the forceful, pressurised burn of a Primus in its prime. 
Joyce pondered the implications of this development as they approached the 80 degrees south depot. Arriving at the decision that Hayward would swap out John Cope in Joyce's tent, the doctor heading north with her sledging party to nurse the dodgy primus stove and the weakest tent north, while Dick Richards and Joyce nursed the dogs south. With only one compass, Cope had to follow their tracks back as far as they lasted, and then rely on the cans and fair weather to see his party back to the depots and the relative safety of Ross Island, the fate of the aurora still a dark cloud over the heads of everyone in the Ross Sea at this point in Antarctic history. The dogs were, at this point, hauling twice that which Joyce previously calculated as the maximum they could reliably be asked to bear and gave him confidence that his single sledge could lay the required depots without assistance, all going well. And while all going well wasn't by any means the mean of the Ross Sea operations, it's likely things would have gone better than they did had Macintosh not been allowed to catch up. Joyce waited for them to see how they were faring, which was badly. His team exhausted. Macintosh's sledge was roped in tandem to Joyce's, and the men and dogs hauled south as a single unit. Spencer Smith, in particular, was outwardly showing signs of his rundown health, and his diary entries recount painful steps and mental delirium while on the march. And painful as it might be to leave the poor man hanging in that state for another month in our imaginations, I'm out of December bandwidth. Greetings to Eloy, this episode, for Spanish lessons and good tunes. Take care and appreciate your coffee and horn on head, because Yuki got hold of my script and made her additions. Well done, Yuki. You gave me the horn. Mm-hmm.